Now last uh, time we gathered together around the Lord's table, we accompanied Christ and his disciples onto the Mount of Transfiguration. And this time, by uh, God's grace, I would like us to accompany them into another special place, this time into the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, to go with them there on this very special night, a solemn night, which our Lord himself refers to as the night on which he was betrayed. And however much we understand the events that take place on this night and appreciate them, I think we all understand ourselves to be on particularly holy ground when we come to it. In fact, I think we could say quite easily that apart from Calvary itself, there is no place that has the sanctity that this one has, when the Lord, for reasons which we will see before his crucifixion, is brought to sweat blood because of the circumstances in which he finds himself. So a very uh, significant time in the life of our Lord. Now, of course, it wasn't unusual for Christ and the disciples to go to this garden. In fact, the Gospel writers tell us that he was accustomed to do so. That explains why Judas found it so easy to arrange for his capture that night, because he knew that he would find the Lord and his disciples at prayer in the place where they always prayed. And for them it was a place of both secret and corporate prayer. Sometimes, like the Lord did himself, he removed himself from the disciples. Luke tells us the distance of a stone's throw. At other times, they prayed together. And they would do so every time they visited Jerusalem during the times of the feasts. There it was our Lord's custom to lodge in the village of Bethany, which was just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And if you made your way from the city to the Mount of Olives, you would pass this garden. And so it was the Lord's custom to enter it in the evening when the work of the day was finished, possibly too to enter it in the morning before his work in the day had begun. And I suppose in, in even doing that, he's setting an example uh, for you and for me. It is one thing to be teaching and preaching and to be learning and living, but we've got to apply these things constantly, seek the Lord's face in prayer uh, beforehand and seek the Lord's place, face in prayer afterwards. And so this practice that he was accustomed to is a teaching and a lesson uh, for you and for me. But on this occasion, when he goes into the garden to pray with his disciples, it's obvious that his experience is completely different to anything that he has had before. And there's nothing really in the narrative that prepares us for what we find in the garden. The groaning and the anger, <coughs> the amazement and the distress 
the near paralysis, the falling on the face and the strong crying and the tears and the sweating of the blood and the repeated petition, a single petition, repeated again and again that if it is at all possible for the one with whom all things are possible, if it is possible that this cup pass from him, nevertheless, he says, not my desire, but your will be done. Now, in spite of how well uh, we know these things, I think uh, two questions could really still remain, and they're pretty fundamental questions. The first one is, what exactly is happening here? How is it that we're supposed to understand it? And even more fundamentally, why is it happening? Suppose for a moment that this wasn't in the Gospel narrative. Suppose the First Lord's Supper had been held as it was held that night, the last Passover or the First Lord's Supper. Supposing the Lord had gone out with the disciples, supposing they had gone to Gethsemane, supposing they had prayed as they always prayed, and supposing Judas and the officers of the temple and the chief priests had come and arrested him and taken him to trial and taken to the crucifixion, without this agony and without this sweat of blood, what would you miss? Would there be anything significant missed out? After all, he was going to shed his blood anyway. Was he not going to the cross? Was he not going to drink a cup as we we'll see tomorrow and on the Sabbath, God willing, was he not going to drink it even to the bitter dregs thereof? So why the need for this? Like I said, suppose you took it out, what exactly would you lose? Now, if you can't answer that, that's probably a sign that even though you might have benefited much from the passage, and still do, that there is something, perhaps, that you might not have grasped about the significance of what is going on in Gethsemane. Now let's ask all of us for the Lord's help as we try to understand that a bit better and perhaps enter a little more fully into the experience of the Lord. And I think perhaps the best place to begin is just by noticing that this isn't a night of just one solemn prayer, but a night of two solemn prayers. Just a few moments earlier, before they had crossed the brook on this solemn night, before they exited the city of Jerusalem, the Lord prayed this wonderful prayer that we have in chapter 17, which I said already is often referred to as the great high priestly prayer. He prays that prayer, crosses the brook into the garden, and then prays this prayer. Two great prayers. And what I want you to notice particularly is that they are as different as night is from day. They're different in their content, and they're different in their spirit. In their content, if you go back on the other side of the Kidron, the order is 
so clear, the prayer is so comprehensive, it's so full. There's a prayer for himself on the basis that he's finished his work. There's a plea for his glorification. There's a plea for the keeping of his disciples and a plea for their glorification. There's a prayer for disciples to come and for their glorification. A prayer that culminates so wonderfully in the desire that those whom you have given me will be with me where I am, beholding the glory that you have given me since you loved me from the foundation of the world. That's the content. It's a marvellous content. And as for the spirit of that prayer, it's so calm, it's so composed. There's nothing to indicate that he is at all disturbed or agitated in his spirit. In fact, I suppose you could say that there was a spirit of joy in this prayer. There's a serenity about it. As the high priest, he lifts up his eyes to heaven before God. And you can't miss the contrast moments later on the other side of the river. Everything is changed. As far as the content of the prayer goes, it just seems to be one thought. Probably worded in a slightly different form each time as he wrestles over it, but nonetheless he brings this single petition constantly before God. If such a thing can be done, let this not be. If it can pass, let it pass. And his spirit is completely different. He falls to the ground. He prays with strong crying and with tears, as the writer to the Hebrews tells us. In fact, he tells the three disciples closest to him that he feels like a man dying before his time. My soul, he says, is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Sometimes sorrow can really overwhelm ourselves. And I don't know if you've ever felt where your sorrow was so great that you just felt you were more or less dying. You were so oppressed by it. Well, that's what the expression means. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. I feel that I am dying of sorrow. And far from lifting up his eyes to his father, as the great high priest just moments ago, he falls flat to the ground. He can hardly look upwards. And of course, as Luke famously tells us, there is a bloody sweat on his face. So two prayers, like I said, as different as night is from day. And so I suppose the question is, what is it that accounts for two prayers on the same night, so completely different in their content and in their spirit. Well, friends, the first key to answering that lies in the fact that our Lord is about to be offered as the sacrifice for sins. This is, of course, the Passover, and he is the Passover lamb. Now, we looked at these matters in some detail not that long ago on successive Lord's days. 
as Paul tells us, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So that's the first key. He is about to be offered as a sacrifice, but there's more to it than that. The second key lies in the fact that the offering of the sacrifice involves two parties, and both of them have to present themselves before God. The first party that needs to present himself is the priest. And I suppose the the clearest instance of the priest presenting himself comes actually on the Day of Atonement every October uh, when he prepared himself to offer the uh, lamb or the goat uh, that was to be offered for the sins of the people. You remember as the writer to the Hebrews says that he first of all had to present himself before God. He has to appear. You'll remember that he had to wash himself. He had to robe himself in his uh, in his gorgeous God-appointed robes. And only when he had offered himself and cleansed himself was he then able to deal with the sins of the people. So he can't just bring an offering for them. He must first of all present himself. Are you a worthy priest? Are you a clean priest? Is your heart pure? Are your hands clean? Will you yourself defile the offering that is being given for the people? Are you clean? Because you must first be clean before your offering can at all be presentable. So the priest who offers must first of all present himself before God. But there's a second presentation that needs to be made too. And that presentation is, of course, the animal, the lamb that is about to be offered. It, too, must be brought to the altar, inspected by the priest, before the priest puts it to death. It must be spotless, undefiled, a male of the first year, in other words, in the prime of life, as our Saviour was at just over 30 years of age. No defilement of any kind. And once it is found like that, then it may be sacrificed. And God will receive that sacrifice. Now that, friends, explains the two prayers that we find on either side of the Kidron River. Before he leaves the holy city of Jerusalem, after the upper room, he presents himself before God as the great high priest. Now, of course, he doesn't need a sin offering. And you know as well as I do the reason why he doesn't need a sin offering, because he has no sin. He's lived more than 30 years some of these years in public ministry and when they're finished and when he has talked and blessed and performed his miracles he can turn round and say now which of you can convict me of sin imagine saying such a thing the only person who can say it 
is one whose heart is pure and whose hands are clean. And that's why he begins that high priestly prayer looking up before God because he can stand in his integrity. He can stand before God in his own blessed righteousness. He doesn't need the imputation of anybody else's righteousness to himself. I have finished the work, he says, which you have given me to do. By that he's not referring to his sacrificial work. He's referring to the work of his ministry. I have taught every syllable that you gave me to teach. I have healed every soul that you permitted and authorized me to touch. There is nothing out of place. It is all finished and it is all done. And therefore, he says, in verse 19 of that high priestly prayer, I sanctify myself. These are wonderful words. I sanctify myself. For their sakes I sanctify myself. What he means by that is, I now set myself apart. He says. I, I am leaving this work of teaching. I am leaving the work of the prophet. And I am coming to this work of the priest. And I stand before you as someone who is ready to give the sacrifice. Sanctify myself. I'm sure most of you know that the meaning... The root meaning of the word sanctify means to set apart, to set apart to God. For us, of course, that involves uh, being made holy. For Christ it did not. It just means that he is dedicating himself now to the priestly part of his work. Here I am, he says, ready to offer. And is he ready to offer? Yes. Does the Father see him as ready to offer? Yes. Is he pleased with the high priest? Yes, he is pleased with a high priest. And it's interesting to note that John is the only gospel writer who actually records this high priestly prayer. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but that's the case. None of the other three evangelists record it. The reason for that is actually quite straightforward. It's because John's primary concern is to show us the Lord Jesus Christ as the great high priest. That, for example, is the reason why it's John who draws attention to our Lord's clothing. That he had a beautiful garment that was made of one piece. It was seamless, except the hole through which his head passed through. A garment that was essentially priestly. It's John that tells us that because his concern is to highlight the priest. Now, Again, interestingly, John does not record his prayer in Gethsemane. He is the only gospel writer who doesn't record the prayer in Gethsemane. But he does record the prayer on the other side. Behold the high priest presenting himself before God. <coughs> now, in the garden, there's a second presentation to be made. And again, he's presenting himself. Now, I'm sure you know the reason why he has to present himself twice. The reason he has to present himself twice is because in this unique situation, he is both the priest who gives and the lamb that is given. He gives himself. So, let the priest be acceptable, but then let the lamb himself be acceptable. 
And it is one thing for the Lord to say, here I am as the offerer. It is another thing to say, now here I am as the one to be offered. He must be inspected again, as it were, as to whether he is ready, indeed, to be the offering for the sins of the people. Now this begins to take us to the heart of the matter, because... When we come to these great sacrifices in the Old Testament, it's mentioned in connection with the sin offering, it's mentioned in connection with the burnt offering, that the person who gives it must be willing. Must be willing. Now, that that is so important. I mean, we overlook it at our peril, but in the very first chapter of Leviticus, where we're first of all introduced to these offerings... God says that if the offering is a burnt sacrifice, now, the the Greek word behind that, when the Old Testament was translated, is the word holocaust. It means an entire offering up to God. Of of course, it's referred nowadays to the the entire, almost entire destruction of the Jewish people uh, now many years ago, which was not entire because God still has his purposes for that people. But the original meaning of a holocaust is just the, the whole, the offering of the whole to God. Now that, of course, is what Christ was doing. He was offering himself entirely to God. But for now, the point is that if the offering is a burnt offering, let him offer a male without blemish, of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. He shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering. We'll come to that in a second. And it will be accepted to make atonement for his own free will. Now, of course, again, because this time, you see, we don't have a lamb. We have the lamb of God. So in the Old Testament, it was the person who was making the, or bringing the lamb. He's the one who had to be willing. Because a lamb can't be willing. But in the anti-time, in the real thing, in the great sacrifice, it is the Lamb himself who must be willing, you see. He, he must be willing to yield himself to God. It's one thing, like I said, to be willing to give. It's another thing to be willing to be the given. And is he willing to be that before God? Now, <clears throat> To give full and informed consent to that, he's got to confront what God actually requires of them. And to speak with reverence, God himself has to confront him with what exactly is required of him. What is required of the victim? Well, there are two things required of him. The first is to bear the sins of his people. And the second is to bear the punishment of his people. These two things are, of course, intimately connected. But they're distinct things. He bears the punishment because he bears the sins themselves. And bearing the sins is different from bearing the punishment. What he must acquiesce to first is actually bearing the sins of his people. Now, all his life long, 
our blessed Saviour identified with us, his people. There's no doubt about that. He identified all through his life with our trials and with our tribulations. There's a purpose for that. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that one of the purposes for that is that he might be a sympathetic high priest. And uh, I've often thought of that, particularly in recent years, I think, this has become a, a more precious thought, that there's nothing really through which we pass in this life that the Lord um, didn't pass through himself. Uh, loneliness, pain, uh, denial by friends, rejection, betrayal, uh, persecution, aspersions being cast about him and his family. He had the burden of raising a family himself once his father died. He had the rejection in his own home. He had four brothers who didn't accept him, which is always to me a strange thing, that our blessed Saviour could live an immaculate, holy life for 30 years in his house and have brothers and sisters who didn't believe. Uh, not only do I find it increasingly amazing, but I find it increasingly comforting. Uh, we sometimes blame ourselves when those closest to us don't come to a knowledge of Christ. But, dear me, if, if for 30 years, well less because obviously he was the oldest, but if for something like 20 to 25 years they, they lived with the blessed Lord and didn't come to a knowledge of the truth, then are we better than he? We always think it's a failure in our own witness, but not necessarily so. But the point here for now it's just that he was brought into situations where he identified with us. So that when we come to him as a merciful high priest, we know, we know that he understands. That he identifies. He sympathizes with us in all points. Because he was tempted or tested. I think tested is a better translation there of that word. He was tested in all points. As we are ourselves. And yet without sin. But is he willing to be identified with our sins? With our sorrows? Yes. And our pains? Yes. And our grief? Yes. But is he willing to be identified with our sins? Is he willing to be so identified with our sins that they actually become his own? That he's accountable to them, for them. That he can actually speak in the Psalms of my sins. That's an astonishing thing. The Bible sometimes takes our breath away with the expressions that it uses. That he was made a curse. He became a curse. He was made sin. And in the Psalms, one minute he can speak of um, his zeal for God and being given vinegar to drink and then my iniquities taken hold upon me. Not as though he committed them, but man, they were so close to him. These sins of God's people were found nowhere else in the universe except on his back. The weight and the burden of them were on his soul. When God was looking throughout the universe for a place to punish the sins of his people, there was only one place in which he could find them, and one place in which they could be punished, and that was in the soul of his own son. No wonder he could say, my sins and my iniquities, not by commission, but by imputation, and really and genuinely there for his. Nobody else's, but his. And is he willing? Is he willing to be put in that place? 
Is he willing to be a sin bearer? Now, <laughs> I know I touched on this a while back, but I can't help but touch on it again tonight. I'm, I'm conscious that, that a lot of people, maybe even for all I know, most people, most people assume that Christ was always a sin bearer. That he always bore our sins. That he bore them in his youth. That he bore them in his childhood. That he even bore them in conception. In his mother's womb. That the sins of his people were upon him even then. And they'll say that, well, surely being your substitute means that he was always carrying your sins. Well, actually, that does not follow. There were many things that were true of him as a substitute, which only became progressively true as he lived. And not only does it not follow, but it's just not the case. There are many things involved in being our substitute. And being a sin bearer, instead of saying that he bore our sins all his life, it would be far better to say that all his life he was being prepared to bear our sins. That's far better. Until the time actually came when the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's at a certain point. It's graphically described in Isaiah 53 in his suffering and in his pain because the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then of course when the Lord lays on him the iniquity of us all he carries these sins in his own body then to the tree as Peter so graphically puts it. He himself upon whom the sins were laid he himself carries or bears our sins to the tree. The doctrine, of course, that we're considering here is the doctrine of imputation. Imputation. Imputing. God puts, he imputes, he reckons our sin on Christ's account. And they're his to deal with. He's got to pay for them. And therefore it becomes the case that he who knew no sin. Now that's not a reference to him in eternity. I mean, of course in eternity he knew no sin. But that does not need saying. But neither did he know sin all his life long in any capacity. Until suddenly he becomes sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, Mr. MacDonald touched on these things last night. And they're wonderful things to consider. I mean, this is a, a simple imputation. I, by simple, I, I don't mean anything easy like that. I just mean a single thing. It's a simple or a single... It's a double imputation, sorry, a single event. A transfer of our sins onto him. Sorry, his... Our sins onto him and his righteousness onto us. But when has he made sin? When did God lay on him? The iniquity of us all. Well, friends, I want to show you two things. I, I want to show you, first of all, that he wasn't carrying our sins as a child and as a youth and even in his ministry. And I also want to show you that he began to carry them this solemn night in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
and that really the act of imputing our sin to Christ explains everything that takes place in the garden and explains why the garden needs to come before Calvary. In other words, it is here in this garden, by his own consent, which only comes after a time of sustained prayer and difficulty, but it's by his consent at that point that God imputes sin to him, lays our sins upon him. And that, like I said, explains everything. Now I've got two reasons for saying that. The first reason is just the relationship between the type and the antitype, or the relationship between the Old Testament sacrifice and the way in which Christ fulfills it. Just think for a moment of what the Old Testament sacrifice involved. The animal is first selected in the prime of its life. Our friends, we saw that in connection with the Passover, when our blessed Lord was selected in the prime of his life. And he was marked out, demarcated by John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He's been living all his life, but now he is selected. The second thing about the lamb after selection was that the lamb was not immediately offered. The lamb was observed for the best part of four days. During that period, the observation and examination was intense. Is this lamb sick? Is it lame? Is it even blind in one eye? Is there a disfigurement of any kind? Because that was not allowed. And it was not allowed because it was to be a type of our blessed Lord. These things care to God, matter to God. They should have mattered to his people. And they did matter to those who were saintly and godly among his people. And they should be precious to ourselves too. These lambs were important to them. That they be right and healthy and proper when they were given as symbols of the great Messiah who was to come and to take their place. And only after those days of observation and trial were complete was the Lamb then led to the altar. And just before it was put onto the altar, killed and put on the altar, the hands were laid on the sacrifice. And the laying on of hands is a transference of something. The only time hands are laid on in the Presbyterian churches in the event of an ordination, when the authority of the church is passed on from the existing office bearers to those who become the new office bearers. In that case, it is a transfer simply of authority. But in this laying on of hands, it's more than that, or it's not that. It's a transfer of sin. Because the sin of whoever was offering, the sin of the worshipper, was being transferred onto the animal by the high priest. It was by his mediation that the sins of the people were placed onto the animal. Once that happened, the animal was doomed to die. It was immediately slain and it was laid on the altar. 
So the Old Testament type teaches us selection, preparation, then imputation, and then death. And is that not true of our Lord himself? He is selected. For three and a half years, or the best part of four years, he is under observation. Observation by God, examination by God, temptation by the devil, trials at the hand of men, and like I said earlier, he can turn round and say, which of you convicts me of sin? Then, imputation. And the moment the imputation takes place, there is nothing left but to be taken to the place of the slaughter. Why? Because he's carrying the sins of the people. So the Old Testament sacrifice tells us that the imputation takes place just before the death. Not in the womb, not in childhood, and not in youth. The second thing that teaches us that very plainly is the relationship. The close and necessary relationship between bearing sin and bearing God's curse. Anybody bearing sin is by definition bearing the curse of God. It is as simple as that. If you tonight, friend, are still bearing your own sin, let me tell you in all certainty that you are under the curse of God. I can't put it any more starkly than that. And I hope convictingly you are under the curse of God. If your sins lie upon you, then God's curse lies upon you. And far from being justified, you're condemned. As the scripture says, you are condemned already because you have not believed in the name of the Son of God. It's not the blessing of God that rests upon you. No, uh, people may tell you it is. Staggeringly, we live in a day when even people in pulpits are. Uh, it seems to stick in their throat to be able to tell people that they will go to hell unless they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even on the solemn occasion of a funeral, everybody is packaged into bliss and blessedness as though there was no hell. As though at the end of the day it didn't really matter to God whether you believed in Christ or not. But of course it does matter to God. It is of the utmost importance for your soul that you know the Lord Jesus Christ yourself and that you have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are not a believer in Christ, you are under God's curse tonight. You are under God's condemnation because anybody with sins on his back is found precisely there. Under the curse of God. And if you're a Christian tonight, of course, um, you remember when your sins were on your own back. And by the grace of God, you came to see yourself as being accountable for those sins because they were on your back. They weren't on anybody else's back. You couldn't offload them onto anybody else. And you began to see what they were and how heavy they were and that you were accountable for them. And you were, a, even though you're today a Christian, you were then a child of wrath, even as others. You were under the condemnation of God. You were not justified. But the moment you believed, the curse was lifted. And from that point onwards, you were blessed. 
As we sang last night at the conclusion of the service, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. And as was quoted last night, there is therefore no, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And although you are still a sinner, these sins don't lie on your back. They have been transferred to the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore you are not under a curse, but you are under God's blessing. Praise God for that. Isn't it a solemn thought to think that everyone in this town tonight is either blessed or cursed? Everyone in this meeting house tonight is either blessed or cursed. Um, a theologian once said, and I think it was a very um, acute observation and an acute and an accurate definition, that the fullness of meaning of blessing is life and that the fullness of meaning of curse is death. Some of you here have life, everlasting life, which consists in knowing God and fellowship with God into the everlasting ages of eternity. And some of you, maybe, are under the curse of God, which means everlasting, eternal death in a place where there is no light, no life, no hope, no joy, no peace, nothing, nothing good. Now we know that Christ was made sin and he became a curse. Now you tell me, if you've thought, perhaps even casually, that Christ was a sin-bearer from his childhood, are you going to tell me that he was under God's curse as a child? Do you really think that? Do you really think when that holy thing was conceived in the virgin's womb, do you think he was under God's curse then? Do you think he was under God's wrath then? Do you think growing up as a child and when he was 12 years old, uh, confessing Christ at the Passover for the first time as an adult, do you think then that he was under God's curse? Was God angry with him? Do you really think that? Do you think in his ministry as he was preaching and praying and healing and performing miracles, do you think he was cursed then? I'm sure when you're thinking about it right now as you're sitting there, you're saying, no, I, I don't think he was cursed then. In fact, I think he was blessed. Well, you're right, he was blessed. He was absolutely blessed. Thoroughly blessed. In every single aspect of his life and being. Because he is still not carrying our sins on his back. He's just being made ready to carry our sins on his back. Blessed in the womb. Blessed in childhood. Blessed in youth. Blessed in his ministry all life long until he took our sin and came under the curse. By the way, notice how easy it is to speak otherwise after Gethsemane. For example, if you ask me, do you think he's under a curse standing before the Sanhedrin and being condemned? I would say, well, yes, I do think he is there under God's wrath and under God's curse. Do you think he is under a curse as he stands before Pontius Pilate to be condemned? I would say, well, yes, he is under wrath and under a curse. Do you think as he winds his way along the Via Dolorosa, carrying that cursed cross upon his back, do you think he's under a curse? Yes, you say, 
I do think he is under a curse, and I think he is enduring the wrath of God. And do you think, of course, as he suspends on that tree between heaven and hell, do you think he's under a curse? You say, yes, he's under a curse. He is enduring the wrath of God. And why do you find it easy to say at that point that he is under a curse and under the wrath of God? Because he is bearing sin at that point. That's the difference, you see. Your whole soul recoiled at the idea that he is under a wrath and is cursed before Gethsemane. And after Gethsemane, your soul gives a sacred assent that he is under a wrath and a curse. The only explanation for that is that the great imputation of our sins to the Saviour took place in that garden that night. That great imputation takes place when he comes off his knees for the last time. After his third installment of prayer. When he finally says, so let it be, O Lord. Our sins are laid on his back. And from that point. Well, from that point you'll notice that everything is consistent with that. You'll notice that before Gethsemane no one touches him. You ever notice that? No one can get near him, protected, he's guarded. He is the Holy Son of God, blessed, not cursed. He's not under God's wrath. Afterwards, completely different. Suddenly, he's struck for the first time. He's spat upon. He's blasphemed and he's stripped and he's mocked. He's hit on the head. Slashed on the back. His beard is pulled out from his jaw. And he moves from one judgment to another. From an arrest to a trial. To a condemnation. Why? Because our sins were laid on his back. That's why. Imputed. And remember from the Old Testament sacrifice. Once it's imputed. Straight to the altar. Because he's carrying our sins. Now, another couple of things before I leave this tonight. I'm conscious that some people say, well, if he wasn't bearing our sins during his life, why did he suffer during his life? Well, that's easily answered. There are two reasons for it. The first is, what else do we suppose could happen to him as a holy man in a sinful world? Was that not what he was? This world has no time for holiness. No time for holiness. And the closer you live to the Lord, there's many ways in which the world will have less time for you. Especially a world that is itself given over. When the world is itself under a special gospel restraint and when the power of the Holy Spirit is so prevalent that it even puts its influence on people in the world they, they will have a restraint towards you too there will be a kind of respect and so on but as the world itself is given over the more like Christ you become the less time the world will have for you and the more you will suffer because the world does not like holiness never has and it never will 
So as a holy man, he was bound to suffer in the world. It's got nothing to do with our sins being on. It's to do with the fact that he was perfectly holy all his days long. The second reason why he suffered is because that was appointed for him in preparation for bearing sin. To be a great high priest, to present himself, and to be forever our sympathetic high priest in glory, let there be suffering. Let him learn obedience in the very crucible of suffering. Let him learn in the hardest of circumstances what it means to obey God and what the cost will be. And that's for your benefit and for mine. The second thing that I just want to ask briefly is this. Is imputation all that difficult, really? Is it something that should fill his soul with amazement? Is it something that should make him as downcast and distressed? Because you could say, well, carrying sin is just a legal thing, you know. It's just a legal thing. It's just our sins being put on his account. Just like righteousness is put on our account. Why should he be so distressed at something that's just legal like that? Well, there are two answers to that. The first, and, and this takes us into tomorrow, into tomorrow and into the Sabbath too, is that, of course, the consequence of carrying the sin is punishment. That's the whole point of carrying that. There's that. But there's also this, that the imputation itself is a shame. It's a shame for him to move status from being the holy, spotless Son of God, to being absolutely loaded with innumerable iniquities. To the point where, like I said earlier, that when God is searching for these iniquities, he can only find them on the back of his Son. It's a shame. It's a shame. Because Christ, Christ sees these things as so dishonouring to God, your blasphemy, your theft, your lying, your cheating, maybe your fornication, maybe your adultery. And there is. And not only are these things inherently offensive to himself, they are offensive to his father. His father whom he loves so much and who loves him so much. And now his father cannot look upon him without, as it were, seeing sin. It's, um, it's like the other way round from what it is with us. Because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us, we delight to say that there is a very real sense in which God cannot look upon us without seeing the righteousness of Christ. Is that not so? Do we not glory in that? We wonder at that. In fact, we rejoice in that. We rejoice in an imputation. Leave aside for the moment. I know at one level you can't leave it aside. I'm very well aware of that. But suppose for the moment you leave aside the fact that we are being gloriously changed. Leave aside the fact that we are being sanctified, progressively washed and made holy. Leave that to the side for the moment. Do we not rejoice in the fact that God looks upon us seeing the garment of his son's righteousness all the time. And there's a sense in which we say, well, that's enough. That's enough to know that's there. 
But think of the other side of the imputation. All of a sudden, the man who never wore a filthy garment is filthy from his head to his foot. It's so that there's a sense in which the Heavenly Father, um, how do I put this, really, without doing dishonour, it's as though, because of imputation, he can't get through to the inherent righteousness. It is the sin. It's the sin that confronts him. It's the garment. Like the filthy garment that clothed Joshua in Zechariah 3. Our Lord is suddenly clothed with a filthy garment. And filthy. I mean, if it was just my sins, man, that's horrifying enough. But yours, and yours, and yours, and an innumerable company. And he's clothed with it all. And do we think that's nothing for the Saviour? Do we think he could shrug it off and say, oh, well, I just look like a sinner, but I know in my heart I'm not one? No. He has become an offence. He is, as Paul says, made sin. Or again, as Paul says to the Galatians, he became a curse. Now, surely one of the reasons Paul puts it so graphically and so powerfully is because he wants us to understand that that's how he felt about it. He felt about it. He didn't like to appear dirty in the sight of God. Do you? No, I don't. I don't like the thought of myself appearing dirty before God. That fills me with shame. How ashamed was the Lord with this imputation. That's why in these solemn sacred prayers in the Psalms you sometimes find these allusions to my shame and my dishonour. If I was wearing a filthy garment tonight I would be very ashamed to stand up and speak to you. Really just a filthy dirty garment. I, I wouldn't do it. How, how shaming this garment is. Just so he could give us a good one. And a beautiful one. And a spotless one. He took that one on himself. He felt it. He felt it. And friends, he went into the garden knowing that that imputation would take place. That he would have to bear sin. And of course the full consequences of that must be made plain to him in the garden too. It's not just that he's got to accept being a sin bearer, but he's got to accept the cup that goes along with it. And he's got to give the full assent to both before anything can move on. And it proves to be so, so difficult. So, so difficult, as we'll see, God willing, tomorrow morning. Let us pray. <coughs> Eternal God, and we praise thee this evening for the one who was willing to be imputed. And uh, we often see imputation from the other side, rejoicing in our own, filled with wonder that we should be considered righteous. We forget that he should be filled with wonder that he was considered a sinful thing. It is wonderful for us tonight to be blessed, but it was a fearful thing for him suddenly to be cursed.
the one who was blessed in himself and who had known blessing all life long. Uh, we pray over these days to behold the Son and to consider our Saviour and to remember that even when we come uh, to profess at the table that we are not professing our faith but professing our Saviour by faith and may that distinction always be real to us. In the precious Saviour's name we pray. Amen. <laughs> we'll um, close singing in the uh, psalm we had last Psalm 69 Verse 6. So, no, sorry, at, at, at verse 5. Um, singing at verse 5. Lord, thou my folly knowest, my sins not covered are from thee. Let none that wait on thee be shamed, Lord God of hosts, for me. O Lord, the God of Israel, let none who search to make and seek thee be at any time confounded. For my sake. Of course, many people who later came to faith were utterly confounded by the fact that God's Messiah could hang um, shamed and cursed as a sin bearer. For I have borne reproach for thee. My face is hid with shame to brethren strange. My mother's sons an alien I became because the zeal did eat me up which to thine house I bear, and the reproaches cast at thee upon me fallen are. My tears and fasts to afflict my soul were turned to my shame when sackcloth I did wear. To them a proverb I became. O Lord, the God of Israel, these four stanzas we stand to sing. <coughs> Oh,
Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.